2: From Luminary, this is British Villains. This is
3: the mail crossing the border, bringing the cheque and the postal order. Letters for the rich, letters for the poor, the shop at the corner of the girl next door.
2: 1936. The post office makes a documentary called Nightmail. It ends with a poem that W.H. Auden wrote for the film.
3: Shovelling white steam over her shoulder Snorting noisily as she passes Silent miles of wind bent.
2: The film's about trains running from London To Glasgow and back again The same trains that were targeted In the great train robbery
3: Letters of thanks, letters from banks Letters of joy from the girl and the boy receipted bills and invitations to expect new Or visit relations the Of
2: course, Auden didn't mention in his poem There were bags of cash on board these trains But less than 30 years later a crew of thieves are about to stage the largest robbery in British history. I'm William Green, and this is British Villains. Today, we're finally going to hear how the robbery played out, the plan, the event, the inevitable slip-ups, and the moment when the whole job almost went tits up.
4: They jump up on the thing, pull him over, and he bashes his head on the floor. He instantly jumped down, went to the trackside
5: fan and picked it up and found the wires were cut.
3: In reality, the robbers had a very short window of opportunity to attack that train.
2: This is the actual timing of the event. This is my dad, Derek Glass. More from him later.
6: The way he done it, by using his initiative.
2: Tommy Wisby's daughter, Marilyn. The train's coming down the track. Nick russell Prevere, author of The Great Train Robbery, Crime of the Century. Now, if the signalman had responded properly, the whole thing would have been scuppered. Graham Satchwell, former detective, chief superintendent.
6: All well, I knew, it was going to be
2: big. They said, this is a big one. And my mum, Heather. So, let's get straight to it. It's August 8th in the wee hours of the morning. Tucked away in the quaint English countryside, you'll find a small village called Ledburn. Just outside Ledburn, there's a railway bridge called Bridego Bridge. And soon, a Royal Mail train will stop on that bridge, with a locomotive up front, 12 carriages behind, and 72 postal workers sorting mail. But let's focus our attention on the second coach from the engine. The High Value Package, or the HVP. The HVP. Bags full of cash, unguarded, no alarms. I mean, for fuck's sake, it's asking to be robbed. Got the farm. Right. They've got the lorries. Yeah. We've got the uniform. Let's review that itinerary. One Austin dropside lorry, two Land Rovers, Multiple hacksaw blades, wire cutters, bolt cutters, balaclavas, stocking masks and two black leather gloves. We've got the artillery
4: with right. us right. and we've got the brain surgeons. Right. Right. We've got our job to
2: do and right. they've got their job to do. Right. He means each member of the crew has his instructions and they've rehearsed this to exhaustion. Some will stop the train, some are serving as muscle. Someone will uncouple the HVP carriage so they can drive it to the bridge for unloading. Easy peasy, if you stick to the plan. Eventually, the evening came. The crew wore military uniforms, with different ranks even. Squaddies' outfits and officers' jackets.
4: The reason they were in military uniform, because there was an army base nearby... Bruce was the captain, so he had a peak cat because there was obviously it's a convoy, which was not unusual in that area at the time. So that's why they drove in the military convoy to the bridge.
2: Bridego Bridge, the old location of the robbery.
4: From the farm to the bridge, it takes about 20 minutes. It's about 18 miles away.
2: They arrived there in plenty of time. Every man knew what his job was. But still, nerves were high. Everyone just sat in silence, waiting. In reality, the robbers had a very short window of opportunity to attack that train. Here's Graham Satchwell, former transport detective chief superintendent. They had 30 to
3: 45 minutes to complete the job. If they'd stopped it in the wrong place, they most certainly would not have had that opportunity. So it's, it was actually a very, very critical thing.
4: We're on the move now. We're going to make our attempt. Yeah. Get
2: in there, get the lorry, see us crossing. Now we've got to stop the time. The crew park the vehicles and get out. It's around two in the morning, but the moon's providing some decent light. Bruce Reynolds, in his high-ranking army uniform, takes up his lookout position and sparks up a Monte Cristo number two. The rest of the crew get to work. The first job when they get there is to fix the signals. That's right. Manipulate the lights in order to trick the train driver into stopping. In order to stop the train, there are two sets of lights that need to be fixed. There's a green light that needs eliminating because a green light tells the driver to keep his train moving, which they don't want. Next to the green bulb is an amber bulb. Now, if the amber bulb lights up, it tells the driver to slow down and prepare to stop. Bingo. Now, Roger Caldry had been recruited for this very task, and his genius solution was just to place a black glove over the green bulb. Tommy Whisby's daughter Marilyn knew Roger. Roger was an expert wire cutter and knew his way around a security system. He had worked with Marilyn's dad Tommy on several occasions. But this time, they weren't convinced that cutting wires was right for this job.
6: And he said, can you see, let me know if you can see the red light? And he said, yeah, or something like that. And so he said, no, we don't have to cut any wires, because that was my worry, because if I'd have cut the security wire, within, say, half an hour, we would have probably, probably got nicked. But the way he'd done it, by using his initiative... Didn't have to do that. So that was a piece of cake from.
2: So now the green light is covered up. You hook up a battery to illuminate the amber bulb, which means you don't have to A, remove any bulbs or B, snip any wires. Because doing either of those two things sets off an alarm, a signal failure alarm. Look, I know it seems like we're going on and on about this bloody light business, but it was central to the entire job. And let's face it, stopping a train going at 100 miles an hour? is nearly fucking impossible.
3: Roger Caudry, the expert, was up over on the gantry, fixing the light there by putting a black leather glove over the green and attaching a battery to that. Now... Under instruction,
2: someone, one of the other robbers down below, and I I think we know who that was. It was John Daly, who was actually Bruce's brother-in-law. He forgot Roger's instructions or thought he knew better and simply took the light bulb out, sending an alarm to the signal box. John Daly, ladies and gentlemen, with a classic robbery fuck-up. Months of planning have gone on, but he decides to take the shortcut. Just before the train arrives... Daly forgets the glab trick and just unscrews the bulb. Nice one, John. Now, if the signalman had responded properly, the
3: whole thing would have been scuppered.
2: Except my dad says...
4: That's a lot of old bollocks. Corderoy was doing the job perfectly. He knows what he's doing. Daly had no idea. Now waffling. We're dealing with the facts. I know the truth. Who was there and what they did. Remember, Caldery is an expert. He's done this before because he did it on the Brighton to Victoria line with Tommy Wisby. So when he was doing the light job, the rest of them were cutting the phone wires so there was no reason for Daly to get involved. He knew nothing about the electrics. Caldery knew what he had to do because he's done it before. And you can't take a bulb out. If you do, you send a signal to the signal box. And then there will be a problem. You know, obviously they would send someone immediately
2: there because, danger. So according to my dad, everyone is just doing what they have rehearsed. The crew crouch on either side of the tracks, hiding in the shadows. Shortly before 3am, Reynolds raises his binoculars. Bruce heard the train coming. It stopped at the red lights. And he said,
4: now we're in business.
2: Let's go. On the train, everything appears calm. A man named Jack Mills is driving the locomotive. He sees the amber light ahead and slows the train down to a stop. Mills is the
4: driver of the train and he has an assistant. I don't know what they call him, a stoker. He said, we'll find out what's happening. He goes down to go down to the phone box on the track, which was always by the signal.
2: The actual term is a fireman, not a stoker. The bloke's name was David Whitby. So, back to the events. Procedure was to wait a certain amount of minutes before making a phone call to the signal guard. But Whitby was an impatient young man. He didn't like to wait. He climbed down from the train and walked to the trackside phone. He picked up the phone and discovered that the wires had been cut and the phone line was dead. He rushed back to inform Jack Mills. As he's rushing back to the engine, he spots a bloke in workers' overalls. He assumes that he must be somebody doing maintenance work, and therefore might have some information regarding the signal issue. He saw Buster. And he said,
4: "What's up, mate?" And Buster said, "Come here, I'll show you." And then clipped him round there, tied him up, and then left him.
7: Mother's Day is coming, and Mom doesn't want flowers. She wants a cocktail. Here's a hint.
2: OK, we're at the moment in the proceedings that has fueled both sides of the argument concerning the robbery. Remember, theft is stealing stuff without any violence and robbery is stealing using force and intimidation. Well, this event is about to become the latter and that set the tone for how the robbers would be treated by the general public, the tabloid media and most importantly, the courts. This picking of size continues to this day. It appears that Nick russell Prevere sits on the side that chooses to label the robbery as simply a violent and terrifying event.
5: The next thing Jack Mills knew is that he heard somebody coming up the steps of the locomotive of the engine and um, assumed it to be of which turned and saw a guy in a black balaclava helmet. Obviously, he knew there was something up. What he didn't know is there were 16 other guys, so he sort of thought, right, well, I'm going to get this guy off my train. He was a pretty sort of brave bloke really and he started grappling with this bloke who was trying to enter his, his cab and there was a bit of a tussle going on Um and as he was sort of grappling with this guy on one side, there were two doors either side of the cab. Some other guys got in behind him from the other side through the other door and then you know a sort of kind of altercation took place during which they effectively hit him with an iron bar and injured him very badly and... Um, Ultimately, said sort of beat him into submission and got him on the floor.
2: But who exactly whacked Mills on the head? That record's a bit murky. Regardless, Mills ended up with an injury to his head, a fact the crew members have never denied. Marilyn Wispy remembers her dad's version of events right after Mills had been coshed.
6: My dad and Danny Pembroke was the two that calmed him down, driver Mills, and sort of looked at his little gash, you know. He had a little gash in his head, and he was saying, my train's being robbed, and my dad was saying, just calm down, don't worry, we'll give you some money. Oh, no, I don't want any money. Like, you know, the train robber who, like, cost him, I don't know who done it, but it wasn't my dad, so it, Oh Danny P, because they helped, like, to quieten him down, you know, pacify him. In
2: 2012, one of the crew named Jimmy Hussey said, albeit while on his deathbed, he was the one who did it. But Mills' own son said his dad told him who had done it, and it wasn't Hussey. And I spoke to the son of, of
5: Jack Mills, the train driver, and um, I mean, his, his son just said he was never the same man again.
2: So, yes, there was a tussle, but some, like my dad, who wasn't there, say the injury happened because Mills slipped and banged his head. Mills is looking over. They jump
4: up on the thing. Jump hold up on what? Onto the front of the, the front, front Driving the train. it, whatever it's called. Pull him over
2: and he bashes his head on the floor. Look, we'll probably never know the real chain of events here. But getting back to the scene, at this point in the proceedings, Mills is bleeding from a gash on his head.
5: They weren't concerned, one of the, the, I mean, in a way, he was just needed to be got out of the way because they had brought along their own engine driver or train driver in order to move the train down to this unloading point, which is about 800 meters down the track. Their own train driver, who was in fact a retired guy, who'd been brought in by Ronnie Biggs.
4: Ronald Biggs said to Bruce, I've got a train driver. He's driven trains, but he's retired
2: now. Bruce said, Okay. sure? Yes, it's good. What can I say about Ronnie Biggs? He was someone who knew someone that Bruce desperately needed on the crew. The retired train driver. Without that train driver, this robbery was a non-starter. No one was interested in recruiting Biggs. He didn't really have the right skill set. But they came as a package, so that was that.
5: Ronnie Biggs had been decorating this guy's bungalow, and that's how he got involved. Is simply because he happened to know a train driver.
2: The trucks are standing by at Bridego Bridge, a quarter mile from where the train has stopped. So now the crew needs to move the train along the tracks to the bridge so they can unload the money bags. Now we know that they've recruited their own driver to drive the train to the bridge, anticipating that Jack Mills may not be persuaded into performing the task. The stand-in driver was brought into the cab. Meanwhile, Jimmy White and Roy James were already two carriages back, uncoupling the third carriage from the rest of the train. Remember, there are 12 carriages behind the engine, but the crew only need the first two, because carriage number two is the HVP, the one with the money inside. So they needed to get on with separating those carriages pronto without alerting the 72 workers sorting mail In the other carriages. There was a problem. They've uncoupled it.
4: Right. And then, but the train was attached by an airlock. Right. And that was all
2: attached. So it kept pulling, but but the train wouldn't move. Because there was a safety mechanism put in place to automatically stop any car that came uncoupled. And no one in the crew disabled it. Maybe they didn't know they had to, or maybe they just forgot. The point is, the carriage they just uncoupled wouldn't fucking budge. It was completely locked up. Meanwhile, up in the engine car, the bloody train driver they'd recruited to operate the train was just staring at all those knobs and dials, shaking his head. The expert right. gets in the train,
4: pulls a few levers. He said, I've never driven one of these. This is one of the new diesel trains. Bruce said, you what, get
2: driving it? He said, I don't know what to do. They couldn't get the pressure up. The stand-in driver was completely out of his depth and mentally falling apart from the stress. Gordon Goody was shouting, get this fucking train moving. Everyone was getting extremely frustrated and time was ticking. That warm night in the middle of August, things were starting to get very, very tense. The crew knew that if they weren't able to move the train, well, that was it. Game over. All those months of planning, hours of watching and waiting, drills, memorising train schedules. All for nothing. You got a train driver bleeding from his head. The police can show up at any moment and you're done for. With all this chaos going on, it's not just the police they're worried about. Don't forget, the 70 people in these other carriages, sooner or later, they're going to be thinking, what the fuck's going on? Think about it. The whole time the crew are in the engine carriage yelling at their driver to do his job. There are ten carriages behind them full of workers sorting mail. Six dozen blokes. Practically an army. And there was one more big problem. No, really? well you
4: didn't have long, did you? How many trains don't stop? It's not the only train coming down from Scotland, is right. it?
2: Right. That's another nightmare scenario running through the crew's heads. Forget the police. Forget the mailmen. If they don't sort this and move on soon, there'd be another train from Glasgow coming down the tracks and it will barrel right into them. They were out of options. Their only choice was to drag an injured Jack Mills back onto the train and force him to drive to the bridge. Bruce, go and get the driver. said, get up here. Right. Drive the train. I'm not doing
4: anything. Drive the train. Right. Charlie's there with his car. She said,
2: drive the fucking train. The robbers didn't have a fucking clue what was wrong with the train. All they knew was this old train driver they hired couldn't get it moving. Luckily, Jack Mills was alert enough when they got him back in the driving seat. Massive disaster avoided. The train now travels 800 metres to the critical point on the bridge where they can unload the money. The well-rehearsed plan was back on. The heavy mob were all waiting there. Train stops. Straight off, two crew members set about getting into the HVP. Jump in the back of the coach. Charlie Wilson breaks the window of the HVP carriage with a pickaxe. Within seconds, six or eight masked crew members were inside, shouting at the workers to get on the fucking floor. When the train stopped at the sheet, at the actual
4: bridge, they all of them broke in. And that's the first time the the post office workers knew that there was a problem because they were screaming and breaking the
2: doors down and the glass saying, get the guns, get the guns. Of course we know there weren't any guns, but imagine it, you're at work and the door suddenly flies open and a load of blokes in masks charge in shouting. It must have been terrifying. Stop pulling it apart and attacking them, so they're all lying on the floor now. They find the bags of money, and now it's time to move the cash out. They've got over a hundred bags to move. Open the coach up and throw in the mail bags down the embankment.
4: Yeah. And now there's a line of men, yeah. and they're throwing all these bags, bank- and they weigh
2: nearly a hundred weighties. For, really? Least, yeah, full up the money. Dun, dun, don't all that pulling it all down. They get a human chain going to speed up the process. They're filling up the trucks with bag after bag. They had 20 minutes to unload the train to the truck. The clock was ticking, but Bruce was determined to make sure the crew stuck to the schedule, even if that meant leaving money behind. Bruce
4: said, we've got to go now, leave the money. We've got to go now. We're on a time schedule here. It will take anyone about 20 minutes to get here. We've been here 20 minutes,
2: we're going. And that was it. Let's go, go, go. During this part of the robbery, events move extremely fast. But at 3.30am, Reynolds calls time. They've done it. Mills and Whitby are left handcuffed inside the HVP carriage. One of the crew warns them not to move for half an hour or else they get hurt. Now it's time to get the fuck out of there. As the crew races back to the hideout with the money... The mailmen in the other carriages are still sorting mail, oblivious to the high drama that the largest robbery in history has just unfolded outside. And driving to the farm, of course, over were saying, well, how much do you think we've got? And Bruce said it's
4: in, in millions, let me tell you that, and they couldn't wait. They drove away in the convoy,
2: very normal, got back to the farm, job done. They immediately get to unloading the bags, 120 mail bags about two and a half tonnes worth of cash. They don't know at this point exactly how much they've stolen, but it looks like it could be a small fortune. Start unloading the, the
4: bags. The, the lorry then backed into the old barn. The doors were closed and the
2: bags were taken down in the cellar.
4: Mainly because that's where the, they had
2: lots of room, in the cellar. Between the 16 robbers and the 120 mailbags... The farmhouse was rammed. And then they start counting the money. Banknote by banknote, working by candlelight and flashlight because they didn't want to run a generator and risk waking the neighbours. Following instructions, they're doing everything with gloves on, leaving no fingerprints. Bruce had said to them, whatever you do, don't ever take your gloves off, don't do this, don't do that. Bruce is surrounded by more money than he's ever seen, but he's dead on his feet. He goes upstairs and crashes out on a camp bed. Meanwhile, the rest of the crew crack open some ale and get down to counting some cash.
4: When they got back to the farm, they counted the total amount they had between them, then they divided it up equally and left all the. Nobody wanted the £50 notes, the red ones. They only belong to Scotland. We didn't make that money in England.
2: Here's what's inside the mailbags. 636 packets of used banknotes. The crew separate the packets. They had a system. Five pound notes in piles of 500, one pound notes in piles of 200 and 10 shilling notes in 250 pound bundles.
4: Once all the money was counted and the the mailbags were left in one big pile and they sorted their cut out, they then tried to burn a few of them, but they smoked terribly, so they said, Bruce said, look, we can't burn all these,
2: we have to leave them. A couple of hours later, around 6am, Buster Edwards goes upstairs and wakes Bruce and announces that he's got some news. They've stolen a tad more than they first thought.
4: So they counted the money roughly, and about three million quid, something like that. And they, today's money, they say it's worth about 50 million.
2: Actually, it's £2,595,997.10, shillings, according to the official record. Over £80 million in today's dollars. It's not just more than they hoped for. It's the largest cash robbery that's ever taken place. It worked. It actually worked. And according to Russell Prevere, who interviewed Bruce Reynolds later that's when a single thought runs through his head. We've done it. What the hell do we do now? Anyway, I'm going to let my mum have the last word.
1: The main memory I have of Buster coming to our house and on top of the car was a suitcase and there was money hanging out of it. And they drove to our house
6: like that.
2: That's next time on British Villains.
0: It caught
4: everybody's imagination, and it dominated the news. The biggest crime in history, and everyone was a detective. At the heart of policing is a,
3: is, is, a, is a stony presence.
5: The only specification they had was they had to arrest criminals. That was it. And they had to do it whichever way they could.
2: From Luminary, British Villains is a production of The Cut, Ninth Planet Audio, and Western Sound. Executive producers are William Green, Aaron Ginsberg, Jimmy Miller, Hans Sarney, and Ben Adair. The show was written by Rosecrans Baldwin and Vanessa Sadler. Nick Reynolds and Edward Rose composed the theme. Music by Michael Cruz. Producers include Christina Moore, Annette Runhell, and Stephanie Aguilar. The show was sound designed and engineered... By Dan Leone. Up next, episode 7 Best Laid Plan.
1: Are you ready to take charge of your health journey? Look no further than Trinity School of Natural Health. With their flexible online programs, you can receive the comprehensive education you need to care for your loved ones or step into the thriving field of natural health. Why choose Trinity? Visit TrinitySchool.org today to learn more about the Certified Natural Health Professional Certification Program. Go to TrinitySchool.org. That's TrinitySchool.org. Trinity School of Natural Health. Transform your life, transform the world.
0: Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky?
1: Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's
0: office.